I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 208. And straight out the gate. Oh, look at you. Let's hit up our Patreoners. Okay. Thank you so much, Alicia F. from Texas. Lainey O. from Utah. Julie T. from Maryland. Lauren E. from Pennsylvania. Dina T. from Texas. Adriana H. from Oregon. Claire and Callie from Oregon. And Andrea P. from Illinois. Thank y'all so freaking much for joining Patreon. If you want an episode shout out, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Also, if you're looking over there and you're like, you know what? I don't want monthly. We now have an option that you can be billed annually. Okay, bougie. Mm-hmm. And it saves you 10%. But we know times are tough. Gas is high. All the things. So if you can't afford Patreon, we totally get it. One thing that's completely free is reviews. Y'all can review on Stitcher, Apple, and now Spotify. Woo, that's a big one. It is. And really with that, you just hit like a star. And so it's simple. I'm telling y'all, it's simple. Look, that helps people find us so we can continue to grow and share our annoyingness (laughs) with all the people. Right? Okay, well, I go first this week. And I don't know what I was thinking, but this is a sad story. I learned about it, so I had to share it. It's kind of like the Black Eyed Kids part where I learned about it. And so, you know, I bestowed that knowledge upon y'all. Yeah, thanks for that. Mm -hmm. Well, this is another story that takes place across the pond in Scotland. Okay, you're obsessed, (laughs) ma'am. I can't help it. This actually was by pure coincidence. And I was like, whoa, what? Content warning. This is about dogs. And there are some deaths mentioned. Can I unsubscribe? I know. I know. I'm sorry. But I'm going first. So you can forget about mine when you hear Carrie's really bad stuff. Picture it. Dumberton, Scotland, which is northwest of Glasgow, which is where the Gurning Man is from. Like, what? I told you you were obsessed. (laughs) Well, there's so many great sights to see in Scotland, but there's one place you want to avoid if you're a pet owner. There's a bridge called Overton Bridge, but it's also known as Dog Suicide Bridge. Oh, that's a terrible name. Yeah. And an even worse experience. Right. The bridge was originally built in 1895 because John White, who had inherited the Overton house, which is basically like a castle from his father, he was like, you know, it's hard to get to the house and we need to do something about it. And so they built a bridge because, you know, wealthy people can do that. And it's beautiful. It's a century old, more than a century old. I can't do math. Beautiful, has three arches in it, and it's got that thick stone wall around it. And it's over this small stream or a gorge. It's not super deep, and it's riddled with rocks and some brush along the sides. And I believe that they said the bridge is about a 50-foot drop for these dogs. Okay, so the bridge was built, and everything was fine, until the 1950s. Ever since then, a total of more than 300 dogs have jumped off the bridge, and around 50 have said to have died from the jump. Oh, that is horrible. Heartbreaking. One nice sunny day in 2014, Alice Trevorrow was on a leisure walk around the Overton grounds with her three-year-old dog, Cassie. Alice said that Cassie was a great listener, super obedient, so she didn't put a leash on her. Well, Alice and her son, Thomas, they were getting out of the car, and Cassie, instead of just waiting, she ran towards the bridge. Again, that's not like Cassie at all. Alice noticed that Cassie had her attention, like, transfixed on something above the bridge. But her and her son, Thomas, couldn't see anything. Alice said it was definitely out of character, and she does believe that Cassie saw something, and that's why she jumped. Because, again, Cassie normally waits for Alice to throw her beloved ball, but this time, it was completely different. And Alice had never heard of this happening, or the lore of the bridge at all. Her friends had told her, oh, it's a beautiful place to walk around the grounds. You will have a great time, sights to see, all the things. And so she thought it was going to be, you know, a nice outing with her son and her dog. But she said that she watched in horror as Cassie looked above the bridge once more, 
Again, her attention fixed on some unseen thing and took a massive leap off the bridge. That makes my stomach hurt. Yeah, it really does. Alice said that she will never forget the whine that Cassie made when she jumped. Alice and her son Thomas rushed over to see below where Cassie fell and all Thomas could see was a dot where she was. You know, that's how far of a drop it was. And she had landed in some of the brush. He ran to get her and she ended up meeting him and just collapsing when they met. It was like she tried her hardest to get back to them and couldn't go any further. Cassie luckily survived, but she did spend six days at the vet. Thank God. Oh my God. I did not like that story. Right. But even now, Alice said that she isn't her quote, lively wee soul she was. In that same year, Kenneth Makel was walking on the bridge with his kids and his dog Hendrix. And suddenly the dog jumped off the bridge. Again, it was a miracle that the dog survived. Hendrix did have to go to the vet, but she was lucky because she had landed on a thick patch of moss and it had cushioned her long fall. Another incident, Lottie McKinnon, she was walking her border collie in 2016, Bonnie, over the bridge. Lottie said that Bonnie froze when they approached the bridge and she seemed to be overcome by something like she was possessed and ran full force and jumped off the parapet, which is like a low protective wall along the bridge. So think about like a pony wall. Yeah. Luckily, Bonnie survived, and she was only a little sore from the fall. Lottie said that it was, again, a miracle that she survived. Emma Dunlap, she said that she had heard the stories and whatnot, but she always kept her dog Ginger on a leash, so she wasn't too worried that he would jump, or even if he did try, Emma would be able to stop him from successfully jumping over the parapet. Even though Ginger doesn't jump, there's a lot of times that he freezes or is very hesitant when he gets on the bridge. And those are the happy stories. There's several times where the dog didn't survive, or if they did survive the first jump, they would run right back to the bridge and immediately jump again. And they usually didn't survive the second jump. Donna Cooper was walking with her dog, Ben, and two friends, and he never showed any signs of agitation or anything until all of a sudden, when he got between the last two guard walls on the side of the bridge, Ben just jumped off the bridge without even looking back at his owner. Good God. And unfortunately, Ben fell on the rocks below and his legs and spine were broken. Oh, God, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. They, of course, rushed Ben to the vet, but he was unfortunately unable to save Ben's life. He could have been saved, but the vet was like, look, there's no point of putting him through all of that pain because there's no guarantee he's going to make it. So let him go peacefully now. I do not like this story. Just for the record, this is making my stomach hurt very bad. I know. One report says that in a six month period during 2005, there were five dogs that jumped to their deaths. Those poor dogs and those poor owners. I know. I know. Alice said that she has pleaded with the owners to put up some kind of signage so no one else is traumatized by this like her family was, including Cassie, because she said she's not even herself anymore. And I don't know if they ever put up signs or anything, but I do believe that it's now a leash-only area because before it was kind of like an open park, you know, where you could just let your dog run and, you know, play, frisbee, all the things. And now I believe it is leash only, or at least at that area. But why do dogs seem so affected by this bridge? Well, there are some theories. First one is on the paranormal side. Some believe it's a thin place. And in a New York Times article, it says that's what the Celtic people called areas such as this, where they believe heaven and earth overlap. So basically, the people who back this theory, they're saying, hey, we know dogs can see things that we can't. And if this is a place where life and the afterlife intersect, what if they're seeing something that beckons them to cross over themselves? Or what if they're seeing something and they're like running after it because they see it and we don't? Kind of along those same lines, another theory is that the whole grounds is haunted. But more importantly, that one spot, the thin place after all. But who is it haunted by? They say it's the white lady. And her name was actually 
Grace Eliza McClure, and she was the wife of John White, the man who built the bridge. They say that after her husband died, she stayed there a good many years, living there by herself, and she would wander the bridge repeatedly, just stricken with grief and yearning to be with him again. And so if you believe that's where her soul resides the most, there's that tragic feeling imprinted there. Another theory is that some say the dogs themselves are sad or can feel the sadness from their owners and so they leap off the bridge. But there's no study that's found that dogs would try to die by suicide themselves. Like, yes, they can be depressed and yes, they can feel what their owners feel, but they don't have that way of thinking like we do. Like, oh, I'm sad. I want to self-harm or anything like that. That's not how their brain works. Right. So this one's not really given any thought. But the most credible theory is that the dogs can smell something that kind of makes them incapable of thinking or like they're drawn to whatever that scent is. So some say that mink, especially their potent urine, gross, is like catnip, basically to these dogs. I swear I almost said like catnip for dogs when you were saying something about them smelling something. Yeah. Well, they want to seek it out. And I guess because it stinks that bad, because you know dogs love nasty smells. They want to roll in it. Yes. Oh, God. That time that uh, you tried to feed Marley the black olive and then she rolled in it. And I was like... Maybe I shouldn't eat these after all then. Because if dog, she loves rolling in nasty shit. So Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, God. I mean, I still eat them. Hello. But it was like, oh, should I or should I not? You should not. (laughs) Anyway, there's other wildlife around there, but they believe it is the mink that's the driving factor. And another thing with this theory is that the dogs who have been affected by this are long-nosed breeds such as Collies, Golden Retrievers, Labs, and German Shepherds, like hunting dogs. So the smells would get to them more. And another thing is that every time a dog has jumped, it's been a bright, sunny day. So it's easy to assume that the smell is potent that day, and if it were raining, it would have dampened the smell. No pun intended. Also, the bridge itself may play a trick on their eyes and they don't know they're jumping. Like they think they might be jumping up on a stone, like ground to chase whatever they smell. But when they jump, sadly, there's no ground there. It's just free falling. And so that's why they whine or something. You know, it's a surprise to them. Oh, I I hate this story. It's just when you talk about their reactions. I know. It's heartbreaking. It is Heartbreaking, but it's such a weird phenomena. Phenomena. But they say they do this because of how the parapets are, and they're like 18 inches thick with stone. So they're really thick. So if a dog just kind of sees that, they think, like, if they smell, like, I don't know, I just thought about bacon. Dogs don't know it's not bacon or whatever. And they're like, ah. And so they're like, oh, gotta have it, and then jump on it. But it's like not as wide as they thought or something. And there they go. Now, I don't know why the dogs who do survive the first jump go back immediately and jump again. I'm not sure on that. But this is a theory that the current owner, Bob Hill, believes. He and his wife have sadly seen multiple dogs jump to their demise in the 17 years that they've owned the property. In 2010, there was an animal behaviorist named David Sands, and he investigated the bridge. And he said that he believes this theory. And when he was walking around, he said, you know, I'm not a dog, but I will acknowledge that there is a strange feeling to this bridge. And I think that's just from the tragic loss that it's had. It doesn't have to be like the reason why they jump, but... I think like if we went there, even without our dogs, I would be like, oh my God, this is so sad. Just knowing that. Yeah. And you can bet your ass I would never go with my dog. Never. Yeah. Never. Because Jax is strong as fuck. Yes, he and is. And if he's going to get off leash. He's uh, going to. He's going to. Like if he wants to find whatever that smell is, bye. And he loves to dig and all that. Yeah. He's strong as shit. Mm-hmm. He can't smell that good. Right. But if he caught a whiff of it, he'd be like, Wait, no, what is that smell? And have to go explore. He would be like, um, excuse me. I don't know what this thing is you have around my neck that I don't ever wear. <laughs> but I'm going to need you to get this shit off real quick. Yes. Because when he's home, he didn't wear a collar. Yeah. He's naked. <laughs> we call it Marley's necklace. 
Okay, so there's one incident where something tragic happened and it wasn't related to dogs, but it's related to a kid. <gasps> Damn. I mean, are you picking like all the worst <laughs> possible things and putting them in one fucking yes, story? Yes, yes. Jesus, God. I mean, just get your year's quota in this one fucking story. <laughs> I know. I'm so sorry, y'all. But I had never heard of this and there were multiple like articles about it and stuff, but had never heard of this. Look, if you're in Scotland, please don't take your dog here. And you just wanted us all to suffer too. Thanks. Yes. But also don't take your dog, please. Or if you do, keep him on a leash. Like a reinforced leash, please. Okay. So in 1994, a 32-year-old man named Kevin Moy went to the bridge with his wife, Eileen, and their two-week-old son, Owen. I believe that's how you pronounce this name, but it is E-O-G-H-A-N. And I looked it up on pronouncenames.com. Man, that thing has saved us or some shit, hasn't it? <laughs> yes. And it said, Owen. Also, I'm trying to like distract myself from the horribleness of I this know, story. I know. So there's lots of commentary for me because I am just trying to cope. I get it. They were having a lovely time until they were standing on the bridge. And all of a sudden, Kevin sadly threw his son over the side of the bridge. And he sadly died from that fall. Holy fuck. After he killed his son, Kevin tried to jump off the bridge himself, but he was pulled back by Eileen. And I'm just going to be honest. I don't know if I could have pulled him back from that. Mm-mm. I think I would have shoved him. Oh, gosh. Like, I just don't even... I don't think I would have just been able to even process I was gonna say, what he was doing. Yeah, I was going to say, you wouldn't have had time to think. You would have just reacted, and yeah. and that would have been something terrible happened, whether or not you could even process, like, like whose fault it was. Right. And you were just trying to save your husband. Bystanders saw what happened, and they rushed to get Owen, and he did get rushed to the hospital, but he died the next day. Well, they also took Kevin... And they took him to the house on the grounds to stay until the cops arrived. But he was able to grab a kitchen knife and he slashed his wrist. However, he did survive that as well. Kevin said that he had been depressed lately and he had been staying with his parents to work on himself to help with his mental health and all that. But after the birth of their child, he was over to visit and they were going to have, you know, a lovely day together. But unbeknownst to Eileen and other family members, he had recently been made aware by some reasoning in his brain that he was the Antichrist and that meant his son was Satan. Kevin said that he believed that the birthmark on his son's forehead was put there by the devil and that they both, he and his son, were to blame for the Gulf War. Did you say how old the dad was? 32, I believe. Wow, that's some like late onset for delusions like that, I feel like. I mean, not that I'm a psychologist or psychiatrist, but I mean, didn't that usually like early 20s? I, I thought so, but I'll talk about that in just a second. But he feared that they would infect mankind with a virus and basically cause the end of the world. Kevin Moy was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and so he was then detained to a psychiatric hospital. The thing about Kevin, he worked as a lab tech for, I don't know, years. But then, like, a couple of years before this, he lost his job or quit his job. And it was, like, chronic fatigue syndrome or something that he was diagnosed with. Dorothy Bornack had that on The Golden Girls. Yes! Oh, my God. That's the one that you love to show me mm-hmm. where she talks to her doctor at the dinner mm-hmm. At the and, dinner place. Oh, my God. And that's also the one where Blanche says, By God, I'm hallucinating. Little balls of sunshine in a bag. <laughs> that's your favorite Favorite line. episode. <laughs> well, that's actually a two-parter. <laughs> and that's one of the episodes where we meet um, the doctor that later went on to be the lead in Empty Nest, which was a spinoff. I almost said Empty Nest. You are trying to I can't do it. The... This story is horrible. It's hard. It's, I know. I know. I'm sorry. Y'all can hate me this week, okay? This week. <gasps> Just kidding. <laughs> but so he was diagnosed with that, and so he had quit his job. And then a couple of months before all of this, he was diagnosed with depression. And so he went to live with his parents and, you know, them to help him and all of that. So he had something going on. Yeah, but like, that's like delusions, delusions, you know? 
Right. I think it was a couple of, like, six years or something before. So that would have been in his 20s. Yeah. With the chronic fatigue syndrome. And it could have just been misdiagnosed or, you know, I I don't know. But the thing about this terrible tragedy, it followed the quote-unquote curse of the bridge. Because it was a clear, sunny day. And it was the place between the last two parapets of the bridge, which is the exact place that these dogs will jump off. And Eileen did say that Kevin was fine until he wasn't. And he just kind of had a glazed look over like his eyes and everything. And so if you're to believe that this place has some kind of effect on whatever, I'm not saying this is right. I'm just saying like it goes along with that whole curse part. Yeah. And am I just making this up or have we said that people with mental illnesses, we feel like they can see other things that we can't. And so it's hard to determine like, well, is that a hallucination or is that really like someone standing behind me that you're seeing that I'm not seeing? And I'm not saying the whole devil antichrist thing was this bridge. That was something completely separate. But like what happened in that moment that caused that? Yeah, we've definitely talked about that before. Okay. So a lot of people who say, okay, it is something paranormal, it's haunted, or the thin place, all of that combined, that's what caused Kevin to act so suddenly on this impulse. Because again, the baby was two weeks old. So if he was feeling this, I feel like he had a chance before this to do it. So like, why right then? So did the bridge have some kind of play in it? Or did he know what was going on and he knew this was a part of the bridge, decided this would help my defense? I don't know. But you'll be happy to know that is the end. So it's a beautiful place, but such tragic events are tied to it. And please do not take your pets if they're not on a leash there because it's just so sad to think about that. I don't know what I would do if Marbu jumped. Like, I honestly just don't know. And so... I don't know. I was just like, I had to talk about this because the people don't know. Also, is there a place around here that this happens? Not like here, but like in the U.S.? I don't know. But like, what causes it? <sighs> I don't know, but I know what it, I know what this story caused. Anxiety. Anxiety in my fucking stomach to hurt. Yes, I know. And I'm so sorry because I was like, oh my God, this is so sad. So freaking sad. But it's also so freaking weird. It makes sense about the mink and all of that. But also it doesn't because it's like one certain spot. There's other places in the world that mink is. And it's not like every time I drive by here or I walk, or I walk by here with my dog, it runs off the leash and does whatever. So like why this one spot? I don't know. I mean, other than to just fucking make my stomach hurt. I don't know. <laughs> no. So I'm so sorry for this. It was so sad. Was this a recommendation? No, it wasn't. It was all me. I'm very sorry. So now it's your turn to make us more sad or it might make yours look a little bit less sad. I don't know. Well, thank the good fucking heavens that I am doing a very different story today. Oh, oh, okay. I know we always say this, but if you're part of the Patreon, aka the Creepinati, you get to be on the Discord server. And on the Discord server, we have uh, story suggestions. And Erica recommended this story as like, kind of a palate cleanser and I am so fucking glad I chose it after this. Thank you, Erica. <laughs> We're talking about Ferdinand Waldo Demera. We're going to call him Fred. Fred was born in Lawrence, Massachusetts, December 1921. At the beginning of his life, it was really good. Like his family was pretty well off, but when the Great Depression happened, they lost all their money and they end up having to move to kind of a poorer side of town. And from there, that is what molded Fred to become what he was later known as the Great Imposter. Ooh, Anna Delvey who? But like for real. So even as a kid, he was always hustling. I mean, getting free candy from the local candy store for all his friends, found a pair of like mannequin legs and a trash can and like put them in the snowbank so that when cars would pass, they would think that someone was like stuck in the snow. Oh my God. And he would like watch them as they were like, ah, and like stop to like pull them out of the snow. 
<laughs> All I picture is Murder, She Wrote, that gif where she's got the popcorn yes. and she's eating and that's him, like God. just waiting. Another one of my favorite shows. Classic. <laughs> so his dad was a film projectionist. His uncle owned the movie theater and his dad was the one that like ran him okay so he was just growing up going to all these movies and stuff because you know he didn't pay like we did in high school my sister was a manager of the dollar theater tiffany worked there donna's parents cleaned him we never paid for a fucking movie that's right my mama brought a brown paper bag to get free popcorn when (laughs) we started having to pay for movies i was like how much are they Uh uh-huh everyone had moved on my mama was not cleaning the theaters and stuff anymore and we would still get her to call up there and be like, hey, can the girls come and see a movie? Yeah, hey, my girls are going to come see a movie tonight. And then at the theater that my sister and Tiffany worked at, we would just pay a quarter and get a cup and get unlimited drinks. That was amazing. And their popcorn was the best because at their theater at the end of the night, they threw it away Uh and popped new every day. Most theaters put the rest that's left over in a bag. So when you go for the first movie, it's always left over. it's, It's still popcorn. But let me tell you, that popcorn that they got rid of came home to us. <laughs> and that's, mama, mm-hmm. that's how we're extra large pizzas. <laughs> yes. Because I'd be like, can I get another refill on this Dr. Pepper? You've had 14. Can I get another refill? <laughs> Hold on, I got to go pee. Oh, and they also had the best nachos. Oh, God. I love a fucking movie theater. I really do, too. But again, we didn't have to pay the full price because those nachos now are like $8. Right. So he grew up going to all these movies. And I don't know if this is what like spurred this interest in him or I mean, if it just seems to be pretty innate in him. But like seeing these actors and actresses like play different people. I don't know. It just seemed like it kind of gave him something to be like, I could do that. Right. Now, Fred was super smart, did shit in school, but was really, really smart. And in one place, I heard that he even had like a photographic memory. So super fucking smart, could just look at something and retain all the things. That's also what Anna Dolby said that she had. I think she learned about Fred and was like, I could do that. Right. If he can do that, I can do that. At 16, Fred ran away from home and he headed to Central Falls in Rhode Island. There was a monastery there and he decided that he was going to join the monastery. Some stuff is like, well, he kind of got kicked out. Some stuff is like, they were like, this really isn't for you. You're more of like a talker because it was like a no talking monastery. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, you know, you're you're more like, got that je ne sais quoi. Like, you, you need to be like a teacher. <laughs> like, you don't need to be in a monastery. You need to be out and about in the community. Yeah. They did the whole, how do you solve a problem like Maria? Right. After the monastery, he decided he was going to join the U.S. Army. And he was like, Mm, yeah, this isn't really for me. I don't really like the army. So he really wanted to be a joiner of things that had rules. No, and I feel like he doesn't like the rules. Because he's, the, you know what? He's like the ultimate ADHD because he thrives in rigidity and rules, but yet hates it and needs like organized chaos. Yeah. And also does like the whole ADHD where you like, gets hyper-focused into a new task and you're like, I'm going to do, I'm going to be a monk and I'm going to do all the things and I'm not going to talk for five years and I'm going to be great. And then it's like, yeah, I don't want to do that anymore. Oh my God, I'm going to join the army and I'm going to be the best in boot camp and I'm going to do all the things and I'm going to spend all the money on all the projects. I'm going to buy the boots. I'm going to buy the clothes. I'm going to buy all the things. And yeah, I'm kind of over that too. Oh, like you with the guitar? Then me with um, painting furniture and (laughs) me with actually learning to paint and (laughs) me with learning a language. And this is literally the only thing I've ever stuck with. Not true. Candy Crush. Touche. It's literally me with any hobby. I've seen this. I think somebody posted it in our Facebook group, but it was like business idea. Like for all people with ADHD that have gotten like hyper focused on a new hobby, like a hobby swap. Oh, yes. Yes. So he had a roommate in the army and his name was Anthony Ignolia. Well, they were good friends. But when Fred was like, I'm kind of over this army thing, I'm just not going to do it. He deserted the army like. A wall bye. I'm not, you know, getting out of this like I'm supposed to. Right. And um, stole old Anthony's identity. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. So he took Anthony's name and he was like, yeah, the army's not really for me. I'm going to join the Navy instead. Oh, my gosh. In the Navy. He was thinking that too. He was like, you know, I'm not so much a boots on the ground as I am attracted to water. So while he was in the Navy, he was training as a hospital corpsman. I'm picturing like EMT type things, you know, paramedic EMT, but I don't really know. But that would mean like front lines. And he was like, 
I don't really want to do that. Boring. I'm going to try to get in officer school. But he couldn't do that because he didn't have a college education. He didn't even finish high school. So he was like, well, let me um, forge some shit to be like, hey, I graduated from high school. But this was at the very beginning of him like taking over identities and such. So he wasn't so good at it yet. So they figured him out real quick. So he was like, mm, gotta go. Bye. And left. This part is kind of confusing to me about the timeline of at some point he did go to college for a little while under what I think was Anthony's name. And while he was there, he saw this professor by the name of Robert Linton French. And he was like, hmm. In the school document, it had all of his good good about him. And he was like, well, that seems like somebody I want to be. I'll take him. So what he did was he sent a letter to the school to be like, hey, can you send me all of my like documentation stuff? So he got all of his like university credentials, ended up getting his birth certificate too. I don't know if that was through the university or, you know, just like mailed in like, hey, I need another copy and went and started traveling as Dr. Robert French. He went to Chicago and worked as a philosophy and ethics professor, which is LOL. Oh my gosh. <laughs> But see, this is where it's like you get different. This is what actually happened because some stuff says he was the professor. Some stuff said he was studying philosophy and ethics because he was in another monastery and was about to take a vow as a priest and got cold feet because he was like, oh, I can't take a vow as a priest. Like, I mean, like he couldn't go through with it being like, yeah, that's not really who I am. So I'm going to kind of bow out here. So Obviously, with this, because one of the time and two, how big this story got around Fred, you got to take some of it with a grain of salt. Yeah. So he left Chicago and went to Erie, Pennsylvania and was teaching psychology at a university there. Then moved to Los Angeles, where he started working as an orderly in a sanitarium. Surely he wasn't using Dr. French to be like, yeah, I'm going to be an orderly. Right, right. So I don't know if he like switched back to his name. Unsure. But given his time as a hospital corpsman in the Navy, I feel like that kind of set him up well to be the orderly because back in the day orderlies used to do a bunch of shit my dad was an orderly when he was like 20 he would do all kinds of shit for those doctors from there he went to washington state and got another job teaching psychology at a university and he was so fucking smart that he was able to teach these classes like he would literally just stay a chapter ahead of the students and teaching it and you know how they say like the best way to learn something is to teach it to somebody you know yeah that's literally how i studied in grad school me and my two buddies justin and tyler we would get together to study because they learned it by somebody teaching it to them and so yeah. i would just be like read 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 okay so this says blah 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 blah, blah. read 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 okay so this says blah blah <laughs> like that's literally how i got through grad school yeah and while he was in all of these places living as these different identities, he is this fun, personable, I mean, like made great friends. And it said that like, as he started getting closer to the people, his conscience would come in a little bit and he'd be like, yes, yeah, time to dip, you know? Yeah. I, I don't want to hurt these people's feelings. Like I'm, I'm getting in a little too deep and he would bounce. Yeah. He reminds me of... What's his name? Scoop McDaniels or whatever? Yes. Everyone loved him. He did everything for everyone. And then he was living a lie. So while he was in Washington State, he became really good friends with this sheriff. And the sheriff made him like the special deputy. And he did all these speeches and stuff for the sheriff running for re-election. But what happened was as he's getting a little more publicity, ding, 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 the FBI comes a knocking. That was supposed to be a knock, but... Okay, it's a doorbell. And they're like, mm -mm. he deserted and they arrest him for deserting the army. Oh, shit. So the same sheriff he was doing speeches <laughs> yeah. for had to arrest him. Oh, my gosh. He spent 18 months in the U.S. disciplinary barracks in San Pedro, California. After he got out of prison in the military, he went back home and went back to living a mundane life, in his view, not impersonating anybody. And he was like, oh, God, this is so boring. So he decided that it was time to become a biologist. As you do. Mm-hmm. So he took on the name Dr. Cecil Hammond. He got a job at Massachusetts Eye and Ear, which is this Harvard affiliate hospital. Oh, my gosh. And like, 
so this is what he would do too with all of his colleagues. He would be like, so what do you think about blah, 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 And they'd be like, oh, well, I think blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I concur. And then, yeah. he, and then he would do that. Yeah. So people are like, man, this dude's really a team player. Well, while he's working there, he decides that he wants to go to law school. So he starts taking classes, going to law school, doing the damn thing. And he's like, this is taking way too long. I'll just go be a lawyer and not finish. <laughs> Okay, so this has nothing to do with it, but kind of. Uh, there's a Legally Blonde 3 going to happen. Really? Uh-huh. It's coming back. And Reese Witherspoon is, like, her company is doing it. So I'm kind of looking forward to it. There's this amazing article on headstuff.org that had a really good breakdown of Fred and his timeline. And this is the only place that I saw this part. But okay, after he left law school and was pretending to be a lawyer, he decided he wanted to go back into the religious monastery type thing as teaching. And it was called the Brothers of Christian Instruction. And so they were like, oh my God, this guy's so amazing. Like, we're so glad he's here. And so they wrote stories about him in the newspaper. And of course, when you're impersonating somebody, I mean, no pictures, please. And the real Dr. Hammond saw the story and was like, the fuck? That ain't me? But um, he is a procrastinator like me and forgot to report it. Classic. So while he was working with the Brothers of Christian Instruction, he was actually doing a lot of good shit. He helped them become an actual college instead of like a whatever the Brothers of Christian Instruction is. Like he basically started this college. Yeah, he got them like accredited. Yes, but he's still pretending to be this lawyer like teaching law school classes. Well, there was a physician who was there as well, and his name was Joseph Sire, and he became really good friends with Fred. And Dr. Sire knew that Fred had been a biologist before because he was operating as the doctor slash lawyer with Dr. Hammond's credentials. So Dr. Sire was like, hey, I'm treating all these monks for arthritis. Like, bro, what you think? Like, what do you recommend? Well, Fred, who was an avid reader, like I said, shit in school, great reader, very smart. He had just read this arthritis journal. And in the journal, they had talked about using bee venom to treat arthritis. And so he recommended it to Dr. Sire and it fucking worked. And so Dr. Sire was like, oh my God, this guy's so fucking smart. Okay. So my eyes got big when you said monks, because I thought he was going to be found out by the monks. No. Dr. Sire is also like, man, I practice in Canada. Like, I really want to get my American medical license. Like, can you help me with this? And he's like, I sure can. Oh, gosh. Send me all your shit. Oh, gosh. (laughs) So Dr. Sire sends him all his shit. Transcripts, medical licenses, like all the things so that he can get this medical license. So after the Brothers of Christian Instruction got their accredited... Wait. Sorry, what is their name? The Brothers of Christian Instruction. Instruction. I was like, Christian Instruction? What is that? <laughs> like, this is too fucking smart for me because I don't fucking know these words. <laughs> no, I just can't speak. <laughs> so after they got their accreditation as a college, Fred was really hoping that they were going to name him as one of the heads. And they didn't. So he was like, fuck that stole one of their cars, and drove it to Boston and got on a bus to Canada. So in Canada, he's got all Dr. Sire's shit, so he's going to become Dr. Sire with a Canadian license. And since he loved the military so much in the States, he decided that he was going to join the Canadian Navy, and he would be enlisted as a surgeon using Dr. Sire's Uh, credentials. Yeah, There, he was assigned to a Navy base in Halifax for two months. He actually fell in love with this local girl, and they had planned to get married, like, even though she tried to introduce him to her parents, and he just didn't show up. But then he was like, cool, cool, cool. I'll get you whenever I get back, because Canada had just joined the Korean War, and he was going to have to go out on the Cayuga, like the ship off into the sea. Oh, shit. So he was like, cool, cool, cool. I'll catch you when I get back. Which he never did. Never got back or never got back in touch with her? Never got back in touch with her. Okay. (laughs) So, okay. This is what Fred did. While he was working as part of, like, those two months at the Halifax base, he had a medical assistant. And he was like, bro, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to get you so much fucking hands-on work. You're going to be, like, the best of the best by the time I'm done with you. Okay? (laughs) 
damn, he is smart. Fucking smart as shit. So he let this medical assistant do everything. He would just tell him what to do. Because again, he had, at this point, he had all these medical books that he would read and learn like procedures and all of that. So he would like talk the kid through it and the guy would do the stuff and then his hands were clean. That was until war broke out and he had to go out on the Cayuga. Not long after he got out there, the captain had a tooth that had to be pulled. Oh, shit. He said, here, put this around it, and I'm going to jerk the door closed. Okay, so funny that you say that, because one of the <laughs> podcasts I was listening to called Things I Learned Last Night, one of the podcasters is definitely a comedian, and, I mean, the other podcaster was just, like, steadily laughing at him. I don't know. It was really funny. But he was like, what, he, like, tied a string to it and just, like, threw the anchor off the side? <laughs> I don't know. It just like gave me a visual that made me laugh so hard. So what Fred did was he was like, fuck, I've never done. I've never pulled a tooth before. Okay. Let me, you know what? You wait here. Let me go make sure we've got some Novocaine. And he like sprinted to his room and like flip, 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 flip through the books. Okay. How do you, how do you extract a tooth? Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Found the Novocaine and fucking extracts his tooth. Oh my gosh. Also, he's doing this all before Google and YouTube. Yes. Like, whoa. Straight Dewey Decimal System, finding (laughs) the book, using the index, flipping through the pages, finding it. But that's why he was so good at this, because he was so smart. So he could just like take a screenshot of it with his brain. Not long after that, the ship arrived in Korea. Now, this is where the story, I feel like every time you tell the story, the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But this is the part of Fred's story that made him infamous. Once they dock in Korea, some Korean soldiers are brought on board because they're all injured. And it's Fred's time to shine. You got to do surgery on these people. Some stuff said it was only three men brought on board. But most everything else says it's 16 men. Now, with this too, some stuff said that his medical assistant did all the surgeries but one. Another thing said Fred did all 16 surgeries. Like, didn't even mention a medical assistant. Right. But the biggest of all, though, was this one injured soldier that had a bullet lodged in his chest right close to his heart oh shit fred doesn't know what the fuck he's doing so he's like okay y'all get him prepped for surgery i'm gonna go wash my hands (laughs) i don't know what he said but he's like y'all get him prepped for surgery brb and he literally does what he always does goes flip through his books and learn how to do fucking open heart surgery and that's what he did he went in and performed this surgery on this soldier and got the bullet out next to his heart and he lived. Oh my gosh. And of course, this the story also gets bigger and bigger because they're like, you know, they're on a boat, like, well, a ship. And like in one version of the story, like there's a storm. So like you picture like the boat rocking. <laughs> yeah. But he, he really and truly does this surgery with all of these people on board standing around him, watching him because they're like, oh my God, he's performing this surgery like on the right. boat. You know, I mean, picture like in the field, somebody's doing yeah. surgery, like everybody's going to be watching. Right. So he was doing this with all of these people watching him and you know you watch movies like catch me if you can or you know and all that stuff and it's like you hear about all these people living these lives but like when you really put yourself in their day-to-day shit like literally how were his hands not shaking like how did he how did he do this Right. I mean, the day-to-day of like, okay, let me scrub in. How many minutes do I wash my hands? Just the ins and outs of, well, hell, this may could happen now still. But like, I just think about like surgery now. The nuances of time in, time out. Who's handing you what? What You know what I mean? And like, I guess when you're the surgeon, you have a little more room to be like, do it my fucking way, you know? Yeah. But like, by law, there's some shit you got to do. Like, time in, time out. Do the pause to be like, okay, what patient is this? What limb are we operating on you know you have to do those like they're called timeouts and you know stuff like that and so it's like there's no way he could know that because he didn't have like a surgery fellowship or anything like that that he had no training in that how the fuck did he know how to do you know and it's one thing to read in a book how to tie a fucking knot it's another thing to do it when you're closing up a chest wound right so it's just that day-to-day shit where i'm like how did you do this like how did you really pull this off Word got back to shore because this Dr. Sire had done this amazing feat of saving these wounded soldiers. And they're like, he needs like some commendations, some something like we got to get like this dude is awesome. And just like before, 
publicity, pictures, all that shit. The worst thing for an imposter. So the story broke and it went to publish and all the things. And the real Dr. Sire's mom read the story. Oh, shit. And she's like, that ain't my son. Right. Like, Because it's like complete with picture and everything. And she's like, that's, that's not my son. <laughs> yeah. So she calls the Navy, who's like, I'm sorry, what? They then like, I don't know how you contact a ship. <laughs> and they're like, we just got word that Sire isn't fucking actually Sire. So uh, I'm going to need you to cease and desist immediately. Start your investigation. Take all of his responsibilities away from him like yesterday. Well, the captain was like, are you sure? Like, he did pretty good. He pulled my tooth and all. Like, you sure he's fake? You keep doing you, boo, because they say this is you, but I'm not really sure. We'll check it out. Well, it all came out, though, that it really, he wasn't him. And the Navy was so, like, afraid of the disgrace of it, this huge thing. And he he fucking did surgery on soldiers. And they were so scared it would come out that they had been duped because part of it too was that they were in such need at the time for medical personnel in the military that what should have taken him months to get enlisted took him like days because they were going to war and they needed people so badly so the canadian navy was so terrified of like this bad press and all that that they gave him an honorable discharge oh my gosh and like Gave him money. Like, here's here's the rest of the money for your contract type thing. So, Fred goes back home, and he's contacted by Life magazine. Oh, gosh. And he's like, well, I kind of need the fucking money now. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'll do it. And so, like, there's this cover of him on Life magazine, and it's his whole story of how he paraded as this Canadian physician that wasn't actually a Canadian physician. Yeah, wasn't Canadian, wasn't a doctor. Yeah, was D, none of the above. Yeah. Well, he might have been in Life magazine, but uh, these new Felix Grey glasses helping me out in my life and giving me life. I fucking love my glasses so much. They're so cute and they freaking help so much. They really do. And you know, when you stop using something and you're like, oh shit, no, that was really helping. One day I forgot to wear them because I have a lot of pairs of glasses. We all know this, but I worked and then edited. And with the black and green screen, my eyes were watering so bad. And I was like, wait, they haven't been doing this this whole time. What's different? And it was because I wasn't wearing those glasses. Felix Gray all the way. Seriously. They are the blue light glasses that started it all. The godfather of blue light glasses. Don't forget about it. Just forget she said that. But look, they block 15 times more blue light and make that just staring at the screen for hours upon hours so much better on your eyes. Because like Donna said, her eyes were tired, watery. It can disrupt your sleep patterns. All the things when you're looking at blue light all the time. And that's what Felix Gray is here to fix. So whether you're like Donna and you need prescription glasses, whether you're like me and you're pretending like you don't need prescription glasses. <laughs> I was about to say. Whether you're a kid that's doing all your schoolwork at home, Felix Gray has a pair of glasses just for you. So start this year off right. You know, it's still March. We're going to pretend like we're still at the beginning of the year because it is flying by. It's the first quarter. Okay, let's go with that. So start this year off right. Head on over to felixgrayglasses.com slash creep. That's F-E-L-I-X-G-R-A-Y glasses.com slash creep. You're going to get free shipping, free returns, free exchanges, and the cutest fucking frames you ever did see. And you'll be able to see them because the blue light won't be hurting your eyes so bad, I guess. I mean, you have to look in the mirror. Whatever. You know what I mean. Look, use your webcam. Take a picture. You'll be able to see it perfectly. <laughs> so don't forget what to do. FelixGrayGlasses.com slash creep. That's C-R-E-E-P. After the article in Life magazine, which ended up kind of being, like it gave him money for the time being, but was really bad for him because he continued his life kind of on the run and as an imposter. So by now we're at 1955 and he is now in Houston, Texas and is living his life as Dr. Benjamin Jones, a professor from Mississippi. Damn, okay. He actually became employed by the Texas Department of Corrections. This is how he 
like one of the ways that he would trick people. He intentionally applied to the wrong department. So his application would then be like an internal transfer to the correct person. So then it became like, oh, we had this internal error and your application ended up on the wrong person's desk and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, but we do need eight references. And he's like, cool, cool, cool. And there's hands him like eight letters he wrote himself. So at first he was a prison guard and he hated where he was because it was really bad conditions for the inmates. The guards were very racist and brutal towards the inmates. And he was like, this is too much. So he was transferred to the prison's recreation department. Then he became deputy warden, but it all kind of came crashing down because one of the inmates recognized him. Oh, shit. Yes. So at first, when he's confronted, he's like, no, man, that's not me, blah, blah, blah. Because like his boss, like the warden comes up to him. He's like, these inmates say this is you. He's like, that's not me. Like, that just looks like me. And then like the warden turns his head and he's like, boom, and leaves because he's always got like a go bag and money hidden so he can just take off whenever he needs to. Also, does he not change his appearance? I don't think so. He had a very distinct look um, that I don't think he could. When he was younger, very handsome. Not your, you would not think he was handsome. I was about to say, okay. He is, I mean, so cute. He a big boy and he looks like like an all-American football player from like the 50s. You know, like he's got the like clean cut hair you know, big guy, cute little smile. So you're not going to like him, but like, he's totally my style. Not at all. He's so cute. You don't think he's cute? No. He didn't. He, he kind of looks like the grandpa from the Munsters. Not even at all. Okay, there he's better. He had a weird smile in that picture. It was it's like a little half smile. He did not That's age weird. well. He did not age well, though. No. But anyway. That one picture he was cute in. Though that picture that I showed you of him like leaning on the thing, that's from the article in Life Magazine. An incredible tale, expert at hoaxes, tops colorful career by becoming famous Canadian naval surgeon. They did him dirty with that picture then. No, that he's smile so cute. Is, no, he's not. There's not a lot of people we agree on. But that's why our friendship works. Yes. Because if we like the same boys, it'd be bad. Right. So just to kind of not go through every single little thing that he did, but... After that, he started teaching in Maine. So he went back from Texas to Maine. Yes, because he was like getting the fuck out of Dodge Uh with the warden like catching on to him. So one of the kids that he was teaching recognized him. I feel like he he doesn't have that distinct of a look. Like he could have changed his appearance some. Yeah. So the mother of this kid orders a copy of the Life magazine is like, wait, this is him. What she did... The ultimate armchair detective. She got him to leave some fingerprints on a glass. And she sent that glass to the FBI. Oh, shit. On Valentine's Day of 1957, he was actually arrested. But all of these people fucking love him. And they're like, no, like, he's a really great guy. Okay, okay. I know that he's like an imposter. Like, I know that he's like a fraud and still in somebody's identity. But like, he's really nice. Like, don't don't be hard on him. He ends up getting two months of probation for not having a legitimate teacher's license. Wow. There ended up being a biography written about him called The Great Imposter, and that was published in 1959, and it was a bestseller, and it made Fred like this household name, and he was getting tired of the hustle. Like, he was starting to drink a lot. Like, he just, it was taking a toll on him. As terrible as it was, he did have a bit of a conscience, and like I said, when things would start getting a little too deep, that's when he would leave because he didn't want to hurt the people. That was what was kind of weighing on him the most, and so... So after the biography came out, he actually got a little part in the Hypnotic Eye, a movie. Oh, by the by, he, of course, played a surgeon in that. I mean, he did have some experience. And then he was actually on Groucho Marx's show, You Bet Your Life. And like after all this happened too, all of these companies and universities and all these people that he had duped, like they were calling him going like, please tell us how you tricked us. Like we've got to make things safer for people's like information and all that. Like, how did you trick us? And he, he didn't tell everything. Like he was like, I'm not telling you everything, but you know, this is a little bit of it. Yeah. In 1961, they made a movie called The Great Imposter starring Tony Curtis. But towards the end of his life, he finally got a degree from a college in Oregon and he got a job as a chaplain at a hospital in Anaheim, California. 
And at first, he almost lost his job because they, like, found out who he was. And But they were like, wait, wait, no, this is actually, like, his legit credentials yeah. and, like, legit him. Cool, cool, cool. He was so popular, and people loved him so much that he basically stayed at that hospital until he died. Like, went literally went from, like, chaplain to patient. He died in 1982, and he was only 60 years old. Gosh. But one thing that he would do, he would write government departments in other states, like, asking for stuff, and would send in a stamped, self-addressed envelope. And so... When the replies would come back, like he would just send them like asking questions. And so when the reply would come back with the out-of-state postmark, he would just open them up, put like his references or whatever inside, and then he had written his address in pencil, erase it, put the next address on it, and send it off. So it looked like it was coming from yeah that state and so he really didn't do much prison time i mean 18 months really right for all of this and it's like it's fun and it's it seems so light and to joke about and all but really and truly this could have taken a devastating turn yeah if some of the people that he was treating as a physician had died right you know because his that's doctor death right his biggest thing was he basically just gave everybody high doses of penicillin he's like well i hope it's bacteria because here's some penicillin that was really all he knew how to do so you know what did he miss on people that you know if he was practicing like as a general practitioner yeah what did he miss what didn't he prescribe or what did he prescribe or were they allergic to penicillin you know there's so many avenues where this could have taken a really dark turn so it's still shitty but it's like it's one of those things where he's such a good con artist that he was so nice that the people he conned were supporting him because they were like no he's a nice guy yeah but he's been lying to you for three years and did surgery on someone yeah wow so i don't know what do you think light easy con man or like whoa it's a major thing because it could have been bad it didn't go bad but it could have but it also went bad for some people like the army the navy all of those places that having to have like i don't know what the saying is egg on their face they didn't do the due diligence and verify his credentials and blah, 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 blah. You know what I mean? So it's still like it ruins institutions. Or what about that college that he helped get accredited and all of that? What if they lost all of that? Because he wasn't a real whatever he was trying to be. You know, like right. it. there's a snowball effect. Right. Because there truly are no victimless crimes. Right. Like, yes, he didn't physically hurt anyone. He didn't take anybody's money. He didn't, you know... I mean, other than like salaries and all that with it being fake, but he didn't like, it wasn't some big Ponzi scheme. He wasn't trying to steal people's identities to ruin their credit, all the things. Yeah. But yes, there is a domino effect and it's so easy to victim blame and be like, well, they were dumb enough to be duped by him and all of that when it comes to people who are victims of fraudulent schemes like that but Mm -hmm. you never know what you're going to do when you're put in those positions and so I don't think it's fair to be like well those people were believed him and blah 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 because why wouldn't they I feel like that's you know human nature to like if someone's telling you who they are you're gonna believe them yeah how many times do you hit agree on an app about something and you don't even know what you agreed to Because I do it all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And so there could be something in there that's like, hey, we're going to sell all of your information. And there is that clause (laughs) where we're like, we're going to sell your email address. We're going to sell your whatever. They're going to do it. And you just accept because you're like, well, uh, you know, whatever. And you go to a doctor or you're going to be like, I need to see all of your degrees, Mm -hmm. your, you know, all the things. You can fake that shit. Like He did. Yeah. I mean. You could go to your doctor's office and they have, I mean, my diplomas are sitting by Donna's head right now. But I mean, I got a printer. I could figure out a way to fake that. Yes. Or get them. Like you said, call in, especially at that age. Like now it's harder to right. do that. It's still easy, but it is harder. Right. Especially for people who have that je ne sais quoi. They've got that it factor where they can just talk to people, tell them these stories that they believe because they're so good at talking. Mm -hmm. Whereas I get on the phone and somebody's like, what's your name? And I go, uh, Carrie. Like, I know, me too, every time. That's literally my name. And I go, um, Carrie. I know. I go, uh, Donna, D-O-N-N-A. So they don't put an uh in front of it. Like, oh, is it a Donna? Like, a Donna? Yeah. No, it's just me. What's your phone number? Um... Yes. What's your address? Um, Every time. Because it just takes a minute to process. So, like, they're good. They don't fucking do that. 
Mm-hmm. I am so glad that my story was lighter. Today. Oh my god, me too. Could you imagine if I've done like a really heavy one? No, oh, I can't. I'm so caught. Thank you, Erica. Right. Thank you. Hopefully that y'all aren't kicking Donna off the islands with that damn story. Ooh, don't send me to North Sentinel, though. Oh, God. That was a good episode. <laughs> that was really good. Thank y'all so much for supporting us. Like Donna said in the beginning, don't forget that you can like, subscribe, review, interact with posts on social media. There's so many ways to support us in, well, other ways than financially, because we really, really do appreciate every little bit of support that y'all give us. We... Oh, and we didn't say it this time, but uh, hello, we're going to be in Dallas, August 26th through the 28th. Yeah, so if you want to see us and lots of other podcasters, head to truecrimepodcastfestival.com, I think, uh, or just Google it. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're in that day and age. Yeah, I was going to say, we have that luxury. Don't sell our identities. You're going to get nothing from us. <laughs> no, a lot of debt. That's yeah. what you're going to get. A Discover card that's got a hefty balance. Oh, my God. But more importantly, remember. Creep it real and don't, don't get, get scared. scared.